Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. This is Labor Day weekend, right? I'm retired, so every day is a holiday for me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I know it's not Mother's Day, but I have a, 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 an immense respect for moms and dads who get little children up and ready for school in the morning, um, as I had my grandchildren this weekend. And last night, they both were up for various reasons and various lengths of time. And so uh, I understand and I feel you. God bless you as you labor after the labor that you went through to get a kid. Just get a kid out the door. Just get him out the door on time. It's, uh, and then get yourself out the door behind them. It's amazing. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how my daughter does it, but God bless you. All right, so Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Listen, I don't know what the future holds. I don't think any of us in this room does, but we all know the one who holds our future. Amen? We get a glimpse of what the future is for the world as we go through the book of Revelation. And I, for one, am relieved that the God of love, the God of mercy, is in control of my future and of your future. No matter what we go through from this point forward, we know that God is going to be merciful to us. In the Old Testament, God had punished Israel because David counted the people. And that was putting trust in manpower, not in the power of God. So God told David through the seer, through a prophet named Gad, that God was giving him three choices for how God was going to bring judgment upon Israel. And that verse tells us, shall, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, that's the first choice, three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague. And so this was David's response to Gad. I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the human into human hands. Second Samuel chapter twenty-four, verses thirteen through fourteen. So David knew that if Israel had to go through a trial, if he had to go through a trial, he wanted it to be under God's control. He wanted it to fall into the merciful hands of God, not man. I don't know about you, but I feel the exact same way. If I have to go through a trial, if this church or the church has to go through a trial, I hope that well, I'm grateful for the fact that it will be in the hands of a merciful God. And listen, there's no, we will not go through the great tribulation. We will not see the things that we're going to talk about in Revelation this morning. But we have no guarantee that we will not go through tribulation. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have tribulation. We know from Scripture, it says, all those who wish to lead a godly life will suffer persecution. So we know that we can, at any moment, suffer tribulation, suffer through trials. And I'm glad that as we go through those things, we are in the hands of a merciful God. Now, notice God gave David a choice, right? He gives all of mankind a choice to either receive his mercy or to experience his wrath. It's a simple choice. God gave us an example of this at the foot of the cross where mercy and justice meet. But God, mercy and justice met at the cross because we have mercy in Jesus dying for our sins and justice in the fact that he paid the price for our sins, right? But God just doesn't give us an example as if that's not enough. He gives us an illustration of what that looks like in the two thieves that were crucified, one on each side of the Lord. One of those thieves acknowledged the guilt to his crime. He turned to Jesus and, and he said, remember me as you come into your kingdom. In other words, he recognized Jesus as Lord, as king. And Jesus said to him what? Surely this day you will be with me in paradise. The other thief never acknowledged his guilt and kept mocking Jesus right to the very end. He had no promise of paradise, did he? One thief received mercy, the other received justice. The thieves are not named, if you've never noticed that, as you read that passage of Scripture, because they represent all of us. We all have the exact same choice that they had. We could either experience God's grace, or we can experience his justice, his judgment. 
The choice is up to us. And if you continue in your sin and continue to reject Jesus until the day you die, you will experience his justice. And in these verses that we're going to read this morning, God shows his mercy. You know, a lot of people are scared of the book of Revelation because it's filled with God's judgment. And it's a scary book. I see Revelation as a book of mercy and grace. God's going to give these people, the people who are on the earth, another chance, one more chance, maybe their last chance, to turn to him and turn away from their sins. So look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, just as you are, Lord. Your word never comes back void. And we're so grateful for it, Lord. We're so grateful for your mercy and your grace, especially the mercy that you've showed each one of us in this room. We are all products of your mercy here this morning. Lord, thank you for being a merciful and loving God. Go before us now, Lord. Open our eyes to see you as merciful and loving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the angels are on the four corners of the earth. And here is proof positive for all you flat earthers that the earth is flat. Okay? There it is. There's the proof text. If you wanted it, there it is. Listen. That's not true. Everyone knows the earth is oblong. But what this, what this suggests, of course, is a compass, north, west, south, and east, right? They're on all four corners of the compass, if you will. And it tells us what's going to take place, and what's going to take place is what's about to happen, what God has these four angels there for, is going to affect the entire world from every corner of the globe, right? That's a... That's another flat earther term. We, every corner of the globe. Globe doesn't have corners, but we're not going to get into that. It is a fun subject, though. So the wind is being held back. Now, the wind blows naturally, and, and it either creates a nice cooling breeze, right, or problems, such as a hurricane or a tornado. No one, unless it does one of those two things, I mean, you've all been on a nice hot day, right, and you catch a nice cool breeze, you take notice of it. You notice the wind. Or you certainly notice it if there's a hurricane or a tornado. So no one really bothers to take notice of the wind until there's something, whether it's a cool breeze or a hurricane, until it makes itself known. But what would happen if the wind stopped blowing? Just stopped blowing as it's held back from blowing by these four angels. Now in the past, God has used the wind as a judgment. He says in Jeremiah 49:36, I will bring upon Alam the four winds from the four ends of the heaven, and will scatter them to all these winds, and there will be no nation to which he out, which the outcast of Elam will not go. So in this verse, God's using the wind as a metaphor for spreading Elam to all the nations, of scattering them. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, we read, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So Daniel sees a time and is described as a tumultuous time on earth as different nations try to take control of the earth through war. And then in Hosea 13, verse, chapter 13, verse 15, we read, Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. So in this verse, God used the wind to bring judgment in the form of a drought. So we all know what damage the wind can cause in a hurricane or a tornado. And this wind, this situation here can be widespread, can be, it will be worldwide. But if the wind were to cease blowing on this earth, it would create destruction on this earth that you wouldn't even believe. Who would have ever thought that just having the wind stop blowing would create such destruction, and it would affect the, the seas, it would affect the tree, and it certainly would affect the people of the earth. So if the wind were to stop blowing, the earth would suffer great climate change. In, in cold areas would become, very, would become extremely cold, and in hot areas would become extremely hot. It would become almost impossible for human life to live on this earth. 
the moist air would cease to circulate, meaning that those little droplets of water that we don't see, that we don't even realize, that we don't take notice of, they fill up and keep certain bodies of water alive and, and filled. And without them, unless that body of water is attached to a bigger body of water, it'll just dry up, which is going to cause drought on the earth. The ocean's currents will cease, and that will cause death in the seas. The, flu the food supply would be affected because the fertilization of some plants counts on the wind blowing the pollen around, right? Trees also need wind to survive. The wind actually strengthens trees. Without the wind, trees would weaken and just collapse. And that would have a domino effect because that also would affect the temperature of the world. The temperature would rise without trees. Trees hold back soil erosion, so, and they also absorb what? Any tree experts here? Brad? Carbon monoxide? They absorb carbon monoxide. Excess carbon monoxide in the world would also raise temperatures and create an acidity in the oceans, which would also kill marine life. So life on the earth, in the sea, and for trees would be unbearable without the wind. So we see the four angels holding back the wind. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Take a look at verse 2 and 3 of Revelation 7. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we have here an interlude, a break, if you will, a break in the action. Now we know what happens when the wind blows upon the earth, or if it ceases to blow upon the earth, rather, that it will cause vast destruction and, and it will cause problems unknown before to man. Because, I mean, when you even look this stuff up online, the experts say there's no way the wind would ever stop blowing. But what would we also know what happens with hurricane strength winds hit the earth, right? So we don't know if the angels are holding back hurricane strength winds or they're just holding back the wind from blowing, period. But both of those things would cause widespread destruction. And so we're told that God sends a fifth angel from the east to stop this judgment from occurring. He says, don't do any harm. Don't allow any harm to come upon the earth, upon the trees, or upon the sea. Notice what direction the angel is coming from. Now, some of your verses, some of your translations may see from the rising of the sun, right? What direction does the sun rise in? Sets in the west, right? So this angel is coming from the east, and there's a message in that for us. Did you know that there's divine blessings that come to us from the east? The Garden of Eden was set in the east. The wise men who saw the star traveled from the east to see the Messiah. The foot of Jesus will touch down one day on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is east of the temple. And the Messiah, when he does return, will enter through the east gate in Jerusalem. And those are just some of the blessings. Now it's interesting to note here that the eastern gate in Jerusalem is called in Hebrew, Shahar Hara Hamin, which means the gate of mercy. The gate of mercy. So you can see there's divine blessings that come from the east. However, there's also problems that arise from going east. Cain was exiled to the east after he killed his brother. Anybody know his name? Abel. I tell you what, I, listen, I could tell you what happened to Cain if I was Abel. People traveled east to build the Tower of Babel. When Abraham and Lot decided to split up, Lot decided to go to the east, which was Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Israelites were exiled to Babylon in the east. So which is it? Blessings or trouble that come from the east? The answer is not in the outcome. The answer is in the direction of travel. So if you're coming, east is over here, right? If you're coming from the east, from the east, what direction are you traveling? Very good. Very, that's a star for you guys today. So it stands the reason that if you are in the west and you're traveling east, you're going the opposite direction, right? So the point is, the blessings are where God is. And the examples of all those who got into trouble, 
They were where God was. God was no longer there. They're traveling away from God. The place that you're heading to, it may be attractive. It may be an attractive place. It may be an exciting place. But if God isn't in it, you don't want to be there. If God isn't in it, you're going to find yourself in trouble pretty quickly. Because if you're living apart from God, you're living apart from his blessings. You're living apart from his ongoing work in your lives. To walk with God is to be moving in the same direction as he's moving in. Because it's that direction that our future with God lies. His divine plan and his divine blessings will unfold right before you if you're moving in the same direction as God's moving in in your life. God said to his prophet Jeremiah, I know the, pr- the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, to give you a future and a hope, not to give you thoughts of peace. Jeremiah 29, 11. The point of this message is that we want to be where God is. We want to be walking with him. We don't want to be moving away from him, amen, especially in this time that we live in today. And if we live our lives with him, with our focus on him, always seeking his presence, always wanting to be in the center of his will, then we will find his blessing upon our lives as we move in the same direction as he's moving. All of those who got in trouble found themselves moving away from God. We want to be right where he is, moving with him, not away from him. So this angel is told to hold back the earth, to hold back the judgment on the earth, on the sea, and on the trees. Keep them from harm until the 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses are sealed. And so we're going to look at that in just one minute. But first we have to ask our question, why would God hold back this judgment? Why? He hasn't held back on any other judgments up to this point. And the answer to that question lies in the heart of God. God's a God of mercy. And he's showing mercy here to all the people on the earth. God's giving them a break. After all that destruction, after all the the fearfulness and men's hearts that we read about last week, he's giving them a break. And who knows? Holding back this judgment might have prevented from people from perishing before the tribulation was even half over. It was so great, the destruction. But there's more to it than just holding back the judgment so people don't perish. It tells us the heart of God. God's a God of mercy. And believe me, I'd much rather be a recipient of his mercy than of his justice. Amen? God doesn't like to have to judge us. Just like you as a parent don't like to have to chastise your children. We will if we have to, but we don't like it, do we? God... I don't want you to ever get the impression that God takes any joy in this destruction that's going to come upon the earth because he doesn't. In fact, the Bible tells us a much different story. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. It's almost as God is is just crying out to us to please turn from your evil ways. Peter wrote, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. Paul wrote to Timothy, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 and 4. And last but certainly not least, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. You see God's heart in this? His heart is that none would perish. And in his mercy, he gives people a chance here. He, He gives people a chance to step back from all that's going on, to step back and to consider their salvation. And to help people consider their salvation... He gives them a threefold witness. There's the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. There's the two witnesses. And then there's the, the angel who's preaching the gospel message through all the world. God pulls out all the stops in the book of Revelation so that people have no excuse. They've heard the gospel message. They, they've seen the mercy of God. So let's talk about the 144,000 for a minute this morning. And we're going to meet the two witnesses and the the gospel-preaching angel, a little later on in Revelation. Take a look at verses 4 through 8, chapter 7. 
And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of children of Israel were sealed. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Natali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 are sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 are sealed. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. I'm glad there's only 12 of those tribes. The fifth angel was not allowed to harm the earth or the sea or the trees until these 144,000 were sealed, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So somehow, God marks these 144,000. He marks them and he seals them from the wrath of God during this time. He protects them through the tribulation. It's different for Christians who are raptured out of the tribulation. These 144,000 are protected through the tribulation. After Cain had killed his brother, God told him what his punishment would be. And Cain replied, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone find him and should kill him. So the Lord marked Cain in such a way that he would not experience the vengeance of man. And anyone who saw him with the mark would steer clear of him. Every believer has been marked as well. Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed, marked, for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4, chapter 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He also wrote to the Corinthians, Now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us or marked us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. So Cain's mark was visible to others, visible so that they knew not to harm him. The mark we receive is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is not visible to the naked eye, is it? So how do we know that we're marked by the Holy Spirit? How do we know that we're His? Well, it's by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? The Holy Spirit, or the, the Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew, bears fruit in our lives. That's how we know that He's working in our lives. Now, we can quench that fruit, and we often do as Christians, but that's part of how we know that he's working in our lives. Another way we know is that he convicts us of sin, doesn't he? He walks with us. He teaches us. And he reminds us who we are in Christ. Now recently I've been asked some questions. And one of those questions was about how our sin affects our salvation. Or does our sin affect our salvation? And so I had to ask a couple of questions on my own to, to help them understand that it doesn't. And I asked them, were you convicted by your sin? Did you feel guilty? of the sin that you committed? Were you miserable about the sin? Did you have peace about it? Because listen, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you and you're in sin, you're going to experience all those emotions. You're going to be miserable. You're not going to have peace. You're going to be convicted of it. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's working in your lives. If you don't suffer from those emotions, if you can sin without feeling any of that, then I would strongly encourage you to search yourself and to see if you're even of the faith. Because it's when we feel that conviction, it reminds us that we belong to him. So that's one time in our lives when being just miserable is a good thing. Because it tells us that we belong to him. Paul wrote, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, in ancient Rome, when a wealthy person, a wealthy merchant bought let's say lumber, and he had it shipped in. That was the only way you could get it. There was no FedEx back then. So as you can imagine, when that ship arrived, it had purchases from all of the people who lived in that city. And so the only way you would know that that was your lumber was to have it marked with your wax seal. 
that when your servants went down to the dock, however many days later, they would find your lumber simply because it was marked with your seal. Well, we're marked much the same way so that when Jesus comes back from his, for his bride, he knows who are his. We're sealed. We're marked with the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Holy Spirit identifies Jesus as our master. And one day there's going to be another mark offered. That mark is going to be the mark of the beast. And it will be a mark on your forehead, just as these are marked, or on your wrist. And it'll, we're going to talk about that at length when we get to Revelation chapter 13. I'll just say right out there, I don't believe right now, today, at this point, it is the vaccine. I don't believe that. You need a beast before you can have the mark of the beast. I don't want the vaccine. I don't plan on taking the vaccine. I might wind up in some internment camp because of that. I don't know. But that's my choice right now. I hope it stays that way. But it's, I'm not taking it because I think it's the mark of the beast. I'm not taking it because I don't get a flu vaccine. I just don't like those things. But it's not the mark of the beast, okay? So if you need the vaccine, if you want to get the vaccine, and that's your choice, please know that by taking it, you are not taking the mark of the beast. Please know that. Unless, of course, there's a beast. But then you won't be here, so don't worry about it. That mark will identify you with the Antichrist. Taking that mark means that you belong to Satan. Now, you may not see it that way, and I'm sure those who are on the earth at that time are not going to see it that way. But when you're presented with a choice, no matter how beneficial that choice is to you at that time, and we know by not taking that mark, you won't be able to buy, you won't be able to sell, you won't be able to do anything. So by taking that mark, it looks like a good thing, doesn't it? It looks like it's beneficial to you and your family. It may seem attractive at first, like I said earlier, but taking that mark assures you of eternal separation from God. By taking that mark, you will be as far away from God as you possibly could be. Now, we don't know what that mark is at this point. There's a lot of speculation, just as we don't know what the mark is on the 144,000. But we do know that that mark on the 144,000 seals them under God's protection during the tribulation. And there's an eternity of difference between these two marks. To be marked by God is to have his divine blessings and eternal protection. To be marked by the Antichrist, to take the mark of the beast, you neither have blessing nor protection. You will have a temporary sense of security based on the world around you. A world, by the way, that is perishing even as we go through this lesson this morning. God offers us an eternity with him where he'll wipe away every tear. The Antichrist, empowered by Satan, offers you an eternity separate from God where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is an eternity of difference between those two marks. And the choice, as always, is yours. You have a choice. God doesn't send anybody to hell. You make that choice on your own. So who are these 144,000? Are they Jewish as some believe? Are they the church, as some others believe? Are they Jehovah Witnesses, as a lot of people believe? Well, listen, there's a golden rule of interpretation that you all should know. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense unless it results in nonsense. And there's a lot of nonsense out there today, isn't there? The plain sense of the scripture says that the 144,000 people are a very specific group of people. What we just read tells us that they're Jewish because they come from the 12 tribes of Israel. And all you had to do is read the text to figure that out, right? None of us here are Bible scholars, but we could all read that text and figure out that they were Jewish. We also know by reading Revelation 14 that they're virgins. They're virgins. They're Jewish male virgins. Revelation 14 also tells us they're saved. They are purchased from among the men as first fruits to God and the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Revelation chapter 14, verses 4 through 5. So these are the first fruits of the Jewish people that are saved during the tribulation. Remember, the tribulation is for the salvation of who? The Jewish nation. They're purchased, just like you and I have been purchased with the blood of the Lamb. And now they're covered by his blood, so they're found blameless before the eyes of God, just as you and I are found blameless. 
So we have this 144,000 Jewish male virgins who are sealed by God to preach the gospel message to those who are left behind after the rapture. Jewish men that are called bond servants of God, meaning they're willingly serving God and obeying his commandments. They've been commissioned, they've been ordained, they've been sent, they've been sealed, and they have a mission. And we see what that mission is, is in the next couple verses. Look at verses 9 through 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So their mission is to spread the gospel message. And that mission, obviously, is highly effective because we see an innumerable amount of people, saints, in heaven from every nation, every tribe, every tongue who were saved. Every tongue. Meaning that these 144,000 are able to speak in tongues. So listen, I don't know if anyone here speaks in tongues. I know I never get that, I had that gift. But I do know you can't be taught tongues. I do know you can't go to, if you're going to a church that has a tongue class, get out of that church. <laughs> Unless it's a dental hygiene thing. I'll stop there. Listen, tongues is not some obscure language that only you know. Tongues is a different language. I want you to listen to what happened on Pentecost in the book of Acts. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Every nation means they spoke what? Different tongues, different languages. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Tongues is another language, a language that you don't normally speak, but the Lord gives you the utterance. So these disciples were given tongues, languages, that they previously did not know to be able to minister to those people who were there from foreign lands. And it appears that these 144,000 Jewish male virgins, not Jehovah Witnesses, are given that very same ability. And, and listen, to me, what this shows is God's amazing heart. He stops judgment. He just puts everything on hold so that this 144,000 can be sealed. And their purpose is to preach the gospel message so that the whole earth, no matter what language you speak, no matter what nation you are in, no matter what far-flung country or, or spot on the globe that you reside in, you will hear the gospel message so that you have the choice of accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior or rejecting him. But you will have that choice. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The mission of the 144,000 is to go into the world and be a witness for Jesus, to share the message of the gospel. And there is an innumerable multitude of saints in heaven as a result of that witness. What an amazing thing that is. What an amazing show of God's mercy. Now notice those saints had palm branches in their hands, right? And if you go to Israel, you will find palm trees in Israel, amazingly enough. The branches of the palm have been used in Israel as a symbol of victory for years. After God delivered Israel from Egypt, the Lord commanded them that they would celebrate a feast. We call it the Feast of Sukkot today. And it was a feast to celebrate their freedom from the bondage of the Egyptians. So the people of Israel celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place for seven days. Sukkot, Tabernacles, are all the same. They, they build, what they do is they build a sukkah, and they live in that for seven days, which reminds them of their trip in the wilderness and how they lived in the desert. It reminds them of God's salvation from the bondage of Egypt. And you can read that story in Leviticus chapter 23. But the Lord commanded them to practice as they went through as a nation, as they grew as a nation, to continue to practice this, and they still practice this to today. In this way, the people will always know that God gave them victory. God 
save them out of the bondage of Egypt. What did they lay at Jesus' feet as he rode into the Jerusalem that day? Palm branches. They saw those palm branches as victory, as a symbol of victory. As they laid them at the feet of Jesus, they were claiming victory, that their Messiah would ride into Jerusalem and free them from the bondage and the oppression of the Roman state. But they were correct. It was a symbol of victory, but not the victory they expected. Jesus was coming to give them victory over sin and death, not over their Roman oppressors. These tribulation saints are also given victory over death. They've obtained eternal life through Jesus Christ, the same as we have. They are and we are truly victorious. Amen? We are not defeated. Jesus has won the battle. Satan may still be taking pot shots at us along the way, but the battle's already won. We are victorious. We're not, we're not becoming victorious. We're walking this walk from a victor's standpoint. We are already victorious. Not becoming victorious, we are already victors. So when we celebrate what we call Palm Sunday, it's a reminder to us, it should be a reminder to us, that Jesus gave us victory over sin. That we've put off our clothes of unrighteousness and we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen? So it's more than just taking a palm branch and making it into a cross. It's a reminder for us or should be a reminder for us, of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Look in verse 11 through 17, and we'll finish up. All the, saint, all the saints stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever, Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are those arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more or thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is on the, in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So these are the ones who have been saved through the tribulation. And yes, people do get a chance to come to the Lord through the tribulation, which is another example of God's amazing love and mercy. They're clothed in white, a symbol of purity, They've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. They've been given victory over sin and death. And they've come to Christ. They've come to Christ. Although late, they've come to Christ during the tribulation. Either by the witness that you left them, right? Because we're all leaving a witness for those in our family, those around us. We leave a witness. So please don't ever stop witnessing to people. Because you never know when that witness will hit home. It may be during the midst of the tribulation. We pray that it isn't, but it may be during the midst of the tribulation. Maybe they're saved by the witness of the 144,000 or the two witnesses or the, the gospel preaching angel that goes to every corner of the earth. But no matter what's caused them to finally get their eyes off, of God, off themselves and on God and ask God for forgiveness of their sin, they've been forgiven. They've received his forgiveness. They've experienced his mercy and his grace. God said to his prophet, to his servant rather, Moses, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. That says it all, doesn't it? God could have just chosen to wipe out mankind with one wave of the hand. Could have just chosen to wipe us out because of our rebellion against him. But he chose instead to forgive us, those who asked for forgiveness. To forgive those who were wicked and in rebellion against him, he still offered us forgiveness. He doesn't hold a grudge against us, he, which also demonstrates his great love and mercy toward us, doesn't it? These saints have turned to God and they've asked for his forgiveness and they've gotten it. And nowhere in scripture does it say that God said, no, it's too late. 
God doesn't say you've been away from me for too long. He doesn't say you've done too many bad things for me to ever forgive you. And he doesn't say you've gone too far. We may think that in our own minds, but God has never said that. Well, the only thing that matters to God is that we turn to him and ask for forgiveness. And no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've gone, no matter how long we've been doing it, he gives us that forgiveness if we just ask him for it. He pours out his unending love and mercy upon us when we turn to him and turn away from our sin. These tribulation saints turn to God. They refuse to take the mark of the beast. And as a result of that, they have suffered and will suffer great hardships. They face starvation. Maybe that's what brought them home in the first place. They've suffered the effects of drought. They've had nothing to drink. They've suffered greatly from the heat and the sun. And if the wind's not blowing, the people on earth are going to see drought. They're going to see famine. They're going to see increased temperatures, as we talked about at the opening of this message. But that's all over now for these saints. They're in heaven with Jesus. They're clothed in white robes. The suffering has only been for a season. They died and they opened their eyes in glory. And God has wiped away every tear from their eyes. You know, as I read that, I think about a scene in the Apostle Paul. Anybody saw that movie, The Apostle Paul? If you haven't, go home and rent it or watch it on Netflix or Prime or whatever it's on. The Apostle Paul, I think it's been out now for a year or two, a couple years. Anyway, there's a scene in there with Luke, and I'm going to go into a lot of detail, but Luke finds himself in among a bunch of Christians who are about to be, the, the gate is about to go up and they're about to go out into the arena to be fed to the lions. And there's women and children there. And Luke says to them, one of the most memorable things in the, in the movie, he says, it's only for a moment and you will open your eyes in glory. It's only for a moment. Whatever you're going through, whatever season you're in in your life, whatever trial or tribulation, it's only for a moment. It's only a season. And one day when we close our eyes on this earth, we're going to open them in glory. And so no matter what we go through in this life, that's what we have to look forward to. That is our future as believers. Amen? Amen. Listen to this verse in Lamentations. Here's a Bible quiz for you. Who wrote the book of Lamentations? Jeremiah. Very good. Jeremiah. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercy stems from his great love for us. God created us, man and woman, right? He created for us a perfect environment to live in. He put us in a, a paradise, a land of paradise, where we could live forever and ever and ever. Gave us everything we needed to live forever. But men rebelled against God's love. They wanted to do it on their own. And I'm sure that it broke God's heart to have to put Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And he could have ended it all right then and there. He could have said, you know what, I'm done with this human project. I'm done with these humans. But he didn't. Because God knew before he even created them, before he even created the world, that mankind would rebel against him, that they would turn against his love for them. Have you ever had or raised a rebellious child? My mother did. No matter what you do for them, they rebel against you and all that you believe in, don't they? But yet, we continue to love them. We continue to pray for them. And we would continue to help them if they only asked for our help. But we never force our love on them, do we? We let them make their own decisions, as painful as that is. Even if that means they walk away from us. Where do you think that heart of mercy comes from? Well, yeah, it comes from having a love for our child. But more importantly, we have a heart like that because we are made in the image of God. And that's God's heart towards us. One of love and mercy. God's mercy for his creation comes from his love for all of us. He loves us enough to let us make our own decisions, even if that means we turn away from him. But he's always going to be waiting there for us to return to him. And the story of the prodigal son is a perfect example of that, isn't it? His mercy toward us is new every day. And there's times in our lives when we need to be reminded of that mercy and love, don't we? Because we forget. 
And just like the prodigal son needed to be reminded of his father's love and mercy for him, sometimes we need to be put in a place or a situation where we're laid low. And it causes us to, to look up and realize that all we need in this life we have in Christ. Christ is all we need. The prodigal son found himself in such a place. He was eating pig slop at some point. He came from a very wealthy background, and here he finds himself living in the, with the pigs and eating their food. And he came to the end of himself, which all of us need to do at some point in our lives. And he, he realized that his father's servants had more than he had. Even his most lowly servant was treated better than he was being treated. Listen, this book of Revelation, yes, there's God's judgment in it. But more than that, much more than that, it's a story of God's love and mercy toward people. Because he could just end it all and say, listen, if your name at the, at the throne room of judgment is not written in the Lamb's book of life, too bad. You're lost forever. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Through the tribulation, mankind is being put in a situation where they're being laid low, where they have no other place to look but up. And God's orchestrating that so that they can't get their eyes off of this world, which is perishing, and get them on him. They've rejected God all their lives. They forsook him all their lives. They've turned away from him. And this time during the tribulation, God is giving them an opportunity to turn to him, not away from him, to go in the same direction that God's going in. And when they do turn to him, he's there with waiting arms. There's no grudge. There's no sorry. Too late, God's waiting there with open arms. God gives a time out in the middle of all this destruction for people to get their minds off what's going on in this world and get their minds back on him. The same way he did during this coronavirus, right? God used the virus to give the world, the entire world, a time out. The virus caused many people to get their eyes off the world and get them back on God. So there's an interlude here in the book of Revelation, a time out. And it's for the very same reason, for people to get their eyes off this world that's perishing and get their eyes back on the one, the only one, who can save them. Where are your eyes this morning? Are they on what's happening in this world? On the politics? On your health? On your family? On your possessions? It's, it's easy to get caught up in that, isn't it? But I can assure you that no one has control over any of those things in our lives. And I implore you to focus on the one who does. The only one who does, Christ Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, the more you will know of his love and his mercy for you. And the more you'll purpose in your heart to serve him no matter what. And to know Jesus is as simple as ABC. And we do this each week. And I'm sorry if for some it's boring. And I hope it never gets boring. But for others it's the word of life, right? For those who don't know Jesus, we hope that, you, that the Holy Spirit moves in your heart that through this message or through the witness of a friend or a family member, you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the ABCs of salvation are simple, simple enough so that anyone can remember them and, and anyone can follow along and get saved. First is A, admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short from the glory of God. As Romans 3.10 tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all sin have fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning there's no amount of good works that any of us can do. You cannot ever work your way into heaven. If that were possible, then Jesus would never have had to go to the cross and die for our sin. God, who is holy, sinless, cannot look upon sin. Do you understand that? It's just who he is. He's, he is holy. He is love. He is mercy. He is grace. He can't look upon sin. And that creates a problem for sinful man, doesn't it? And the only way for that to be corrected is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That he's, his righteousness is imputed to us. Justified. Just as if we never sinned. That only happens through Jesus. That's why he says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No one enters heaven except through me. B is believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and that when he rose from the dead, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Romans, 3, Romans chapter 10, rather, verses 10 through 11 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
And I tell you each week that you will never regret giving your life to Jesus Christ. You will never regret asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And once you admit you're a sinner and you turn from that sin and you believe Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead, you repent and then you call upon his name, which is C. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, don't ever, please don't ever believe you're beyond the reach of God, ever. That you've done something or many things that God cannot forgive you for. You've done nothing that God cannot forgive you for. Nothing. The only unforgivable sin, I said it this morning, is that you die in your sin rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the only sin that God will not forgive you for. Like the thief on the cross who acknowledged his guilt and acknowledged that Jesus was Lord and said, remember me, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom. Admit that you're a sinner. Acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you will be saved. You will be with him in paradise. Now listen, if you need to put that into a prayer, if you never prayed or, or asked Jesus to come into your life, to be your Lord and Savior, to submit and surrender to him, then I can help you put those words into a prayer. It's not a magical prayer. The words in themselves will not save you. It's the change of your heart. It's, it's, it's if you believe with your heart, with your heart, you desire to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You desire to surrender to him, to submit to him. Then I'm going to ask you all this morning to bow your head. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand. Just slip up your hand. If you want that salvation that we talked about this morning, just slip up your hand. It's nice to know I'm in a room full of believers. But if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to know him, then pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize, Lord, that there are many things in my life that I am not proud of. Many things in my life that I wish I had not done. But I am grateful that I am not beyond your reach. That there is nothing that I have done that would keep me from asking for your forgiveness. And so I ask, Lord, now for you to forgive me of my sin. And Lord, I ask that you give me the strength and the help in the person of the Holy Spirit, to repent of that sin, to turn from it, and walk with you all the days of my life. So fill me now, Lord, with your Holy Spirit as I submit to you and surrender my life to you. I ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the kingdom of God. You will be in paradise one day with Jesus. And as we always say in parting, we'll see you there or we'll see you in the air. God bless you guys.